Chapter Twelve of the Hidden Hand. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget. The Hidden Hand by E. D. E. N. Southworth. Chapter Twelve. Mara's Dream. And now her narrow kitchen walls stretched away into stately halls. The weary wheel to a spinet turned. The tallow candle an astral burned. A manly form at her side she saw, and joy was duty, and love was law. Whittier. On the same Saturday morning that Herbert Grayson hurried away from his friend's cottage to travel post to Hurricane Hall, for the sole purpose of accelerating the coming of her good fortune, Mara Rock walked about the house with a step so light, with eyes so bright, and cheeks so blooming, that one might have thought that years had rolled backward in their course and made her a young girl again. Traverse gazed upon her in delight. Reversing the words of the text, he said, We must call you no longer Mara, which is bitter, but we must call you Naomi, which is beautiful, mother. Young flatterer, she answered, smiling and slightly flushing. But tell me truly, Traverse, am I very much fated? Have care and toil and grief made me look old? You old? exclaimed the boy, running his eyes over her beaming face and graceful form with a look of non-comprehension that might have satisfied her, but did not, for she immediately repeated, Yes, do I look old? Indeed, I do not ask from vanity, child. Ah, it little becomes me to be vain. But I do wish to look well in someone's eyes. I wish there was a looking-glass in the house, mother, that it might tell you. You should be called Naomi instead of Mara. Ah, that is just what he used to say to me in the old happy time, the time in paradise, before the serpent entered. What he, mother? Your father, boy, of course. That was the first time she had ever mentioned his father to her son, and now she spoke of him with such a flush of joy and hope, that even while her words referred darkly to the past, her eyes looked brightly to the future. All this, taken with the events of the preceding evening, greatly bewildered the mind of Travers, and agitated him with the wildest conjectures. "'Mother, will you tell me about my father, and also what is beyond this promised kindness of Major Warfield that has made you so happy?' he asked. "'Not now, my boy, dear boy, not now. I must not, I cannot, I dare not yet.' Wait a few days, and you shall know all. Oh, it is hard to keep a secret from my boy. But then, it is not only my secret, but another's. You do not think hard of me for withholding it now, do you, Traverse? she asked, affectionately. No, dear mother, of course I don't. I know you must be right, and I am glad to see you happy. Happy? Oh, boy, you don't know how happy I am. I did not think any human being could ever feel so joyful in this erring world, much less me. One cause of this excessive joyful feeling must be from the contrast, else it were dreadful to be so happy. "'Mother, I don't know what you mean,' said Traverse uneasily, for he was too young to understand these paradoxes of feeling and thought, and there were moments when he feared for his mother's reason. "'Oh, Traverse, think of it! Eighteen long, long years of estrangement, sorrow and dreadful suspense, eighteen long, long, weary years of patience against anger, and loving against hatred, and hoping against despair.' "'Your young mind cannot grasp it. "'Your very life is not so long. "'I was seventeen then. "'I am thirty-five now. "'And after wasting all my young years of womanhood "'in loving, hoping, longing, "'lo, the light of life has dawned at last.' "'God save you, mother,' said the boy fervently, "'for her wild, unnatural joy "'continued to augment his anxiety. "'Ah, Travers, I dare not tell you the secret now, "'and yet I am always letting it out, "'because my heart overflows from its fullness.' Ah, boy, many, many weary nights have I lain awake from grief. But last night I lay awake from joy. Think of it. 
The boy's only reply to this was a deep sigh. He was becoming seriously alarmed. I never saw her so excited. I wish she would get calm, was his secret thought. Then, with the design of changing the current of her ideas, he took off his coat and said, "'Mother, my pocket is half torn out, and though there's no danger at my losing a great deal out of it, still I'll get you, please, to sew it in while I mend the fence.' "'Sew the pocket? Mend the fence? Well,' smiled Mrs. Rock, "'we'll do so if it will amuse you. The mended fence will be a convenience to the next tenant, and the patched coat will do for some poor boy. Ah, Travers, we must be very good to the poor, in more ways than in giving them what we do not ourselves need.' "'For we shall know what it is to have been poor,' she concluded, in more serious tones than she had yet used. Travers was glad of this, and went out to his work feeling somewhat better satisfied. The delirium of happiness lasted intermittently a whole week, during the last three days of which Mrs. Rock was constantly going to the door and looking up the road, as if expecting someone. The mail came from Tip-Top to Staunton only once a week, on Saturday morning. Therefore, when Saturday came again— she sent her son to the post-office, saying, "'If they do not come to-day, they will surely write.' Travers hastened with all his speed, and got there so soon that he had to wait for the mail to be opened. Meanwhile, at home the widow walked the floor in restless, joyous anticipation, or went to the door and strained her eyes up the road to watch for Travers, and perhaps for someone else's coming. At last she discerned her son, who came down the road walking rapidly, smiling triumphantly, and holding a letter up to view.' She ran out of the gate to meet him, seized and kissed the letter, and then, with her face burning, her heart palpitating, and her fingers trembling, she hastened into the house, threw herself into the little low chair by the fire, and opened the letter. It was from Herbert, and read thus, Hurricane Hall, November 30th, 1843. My dearest and best Mrs. Rock, may God strengthen you to read the few bitter lines I have to write. Most unhappily, Major Warfield did not know exactly who you were when he promised so much. Upon learning your name, he withdrew all his promises. At night, in his library, he told me all your early history. Having heard all, the very worst, I believe you as pure as an angel, so I told him. So I would uphold my life and seal with my death. Trust yet in God, and believe in the earnest respect and affection of your grateful and attached son, Herbert Grayson. P.S for henceforth I shall call you mother. Quietly she finished reading, pressed the letter again to her lips, reached it to the fire, saw it like her hope shrivel up to ashes, and then she arose, and with her trembling fingers clinging together, walked up and down the floor. There were no tears in her eyes, but, oh, such a look of unutterable woe on her pale, blank, despairing face. Travers watched her, and saw that something had gone frightfully wrong, that some awful revolution of fate or revulsion of feeling had passed over her in this dread hour. Cautiously he approached her. Gently he laid his hand upon her shoulder. Tenderly he whispered, Mother. She turned and looked strangely at him, then exclaiming, Oh, Travers, how happy I was this day week! She burst into a flood of tears. Travers threw his arm around his mother's waist, and half coaxed and half bore her to a low chair, and sat her in it, and knelt by her side, and embracing her fondly, whispered, "'Mother, don't weep so bitterly. You have me. Am I nothing? Mother, I love you more than son ever loved his mother, or suitor his sweetheart, or husband his wife. Oh, is my love nothing, mother?' Only sobs answered him. "'Mother,' he pleaded, "'you are all the world to me. Let me be all the world to you. I can be it, mother.' I can be it, try me. I will make every effort for my mother, and the Lord will bless us. Still no answer but convulsive sobs. 
Oh, mother, mother, I will try to do for you more than ever son did for mother or man for woman before. Dear mother, if you will not break my heart by weeping so. The sobbing abated a little, partly from exhaustion, and partly from the soothing influences of the boy's loving words. Listen, dear mother, what I will do. In the olden times of chivalry, young knights bound themselves by sacred vows to the service of some lady, and labored long and perilously in her honor. For her blood was spilled, for her fields were won. But mother never yet toiled knight in the battlefield for his lady-love, as I will in the battle of life for my dearest lady, my own mother. She reached out her hand and silently pressed his. Come, come, said Travers, lift up your head and smile. We are young yet, both you and I. For, after all, you are not much older than your son, and we two will journey up and down the hills of life together, all in all to each other. And when at last we are old, as we shall be when you are seventy-seven and I am sixty, we will leave all our fortune that we shall have made to found a home for widows and orphans, as we were, and we will pass out and go to heaven together. Now, indeed, this poor modern Hagar looked up and smiled at the oddity of her Ishmael's far-reaching thought. In that poor household grief might not be indulged. Mara Rock took down her work-basket and sat down to finish a lot of shirts, and Travers went out with his horse and saw to look for a job at cutting wood for twenty-five cents a cord, small beginnings of the fortune that was to found and endow asylums, but many a fortune has been commenced upon less. Mara Rock had managed to dismiss her boy with a smile, but that was the last effort of nature. As soon as he was gone and she found herself alone, tear after tear welled up in her eyes and rolled down her pale cheeks. Sigh after sigh heaved her bosom. Ah, the transitory joy of the past week had been but the lightning's arrowy course scathing where it illumined. She felt as if this last blow that had struck her down from the height of hope to the depth of despair had broken her heart, as if the power of reaction was gone, and she mourned as one who would not be comforted. While she sat thus the door opened, and before she was aware of his presence, Herbert Grayson entered the room and came softly to her side. Ere she could speak to him, he dropped upon one knee at her feet, and bowed his young head lowly over the hand that he took and pressed to his lips. Then he arose and stood before her. This was not unnatural or exaggerated. It was his way of expressing the reverential sympathy and compassion he felt for her strange, lifelong martyrdom. "'Herbert, you here? Why, we only got your letter this morning,' she said, in tones of gentle inquiry, as she arose and placed a chair for him. "'Yes, I could not bear to stay away from you at such a time. I came up in the same mail-coach that brought my letter, but I kept myself out of Traverse's sight, for I could not bear to intrude upon you in the first hour of your disappointment,' said Herbert, in a broken voice. "'Oh, that need not have kept you away, dear boy. I did not cry much. I am used to trouble, you know. I shall get over this also.' after a little while, and things will go on in the old way, said Mara Rock, struggling to repress the rising emotion that, however, overcame her, for dropping her head upon her sailor-boy's shoulder, she burst into a flood of tears and wept plenteously. Dear mother, be comforted, he said. Dear mother, be comforted. End of chapter 12